Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Today, I'm going to react to Michael Saylor's appearance on Hedgeye. So this was from about three or four weeks ago. Michael Saylor is the founder and CEO of MicroStrategy. He famously invested $450 million of his company's cash balance into Bitcoin as like their cash position. And he's like kind of the new flavor of evangelist for Bitcoin. Keith McCulloch is the founder and CEO of Hedgeye. Um, so he is the other person in this interview. He famously went all out Bitcoin about, I would say, three months ago. He's a trader. His Hedgeye, what they do is they sell hedge fund quality research to retail investors. That's kind of their thing. Um, maybe even institutional investors, I don't know. But uh, they just say everyday investors, I believe, on their website is what they call it. So he famously went all out Bitcoin and after just a few month trade that he had on. Um, and so this this conversation is kind of two guys talking past each other a little bit um, where Michael Saylor is coming from a, a buy and hold type of strategy. And Keith McCulloch is coming from a, a very nuanced um, math driven trading strategy. So they're kind of talking past each other, but it's very interesting. Um, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Hedgeye. Um, I am a big fan of Michael Saylor, but I do disagree with him here on a couple points. So that will be interesting. Just to note, this is constructive criticism. Everybody is learning about Bitcoin, including myself, and I'm using this audio under fair use. Of course, the links will be in the show notes to the original. So let me cue that up. All right, and if you guys want to support the show, go to BitcoinAndMarkets.com and sign up to become a member there. Uh, I have a free tier that is just a weekly newsletter, as well as a um, member tier that gives you more member content. Also, check out the Bitcoin Dictionary, BitcoinDictionary.cc. It's a great addition to any Bitcoin library. And maybe most important, please share my uh, podcast around to your Bitcoin meetups or in your Telegram groups or wherever else you guys talk to Bitcoiners. Thank you for everyone who supports the show. All right. All queued up. 820. Let's go. On the other hand, here's the thing I think about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is the first software network in the history of the world that can, that, that can uh, pull monetary energy. So the, these Bitcoiners have figured out something that is really a thing of beauty and extraordinary, extraordinary value. They're pooling pure monetary energy on a network. And, and once you, if I take $100 million and I put it into Bitcoin, it could sit there for a decade, like in a battery. It won't bleed out. You're not losing 2 to 4% a year. And, uh, and, I can put it in the palm of my hand and I can move it around the planet for a few dollars in a few minutes. And we've never in the history of the world figured that out. And, uh, and so it's very early on. My, I, I like monetary, I, I like software network. Okay. Before he gets into that part, um, you can see here, he is stating the new narrative, the new evangelist case for Bitcoin. I remember going back to like 2014 and 15, Roger Ver, so, you know, famously, he was a big evangelist for Bitcoin, one of the first quote unquote Bitcoin investors. And uh, it was all about fast payments, you know, 
and low fees and all that. And so it, it came to, it became a problem when the scaling debate happened, right? Because people had come in being evangelized with this certain message and uh, it, I mean, it didn't necessarily backfire, but it came back to haunt us a little bit. Um, now this is the new uh, evangelist case, and I think it's it's a good one. Uh, but uh, you know, Bitcoin is many things to many people. This fits Michael Saylor's investment thesis or investment strategy in Bitcoin, uh, but it doesn't fit everybody. So be aware of that. And anyway, let's. I'm going to rewind it a couple seconds because he is getting into this uh, part about size of networks. All right, let's go. My, I, I like monitoring. I, I like software networks that are worth more than $100 billion that are, are 50x bigger than their competitor that are going to eat the world that 99% of the world doesn't agree with me on. So, in fact, I like the fact that people don't understand it, don't agree with it, are afraid of it because I couldn't afford to buy it if they all agreed with me. Yeah. And we're, I believe we're at that inflection point for Bitcoin where it's like it's big enough to be unstoppable but it's still new enough that there are 10,000 billionaires or billion-dollar entities, and maybe five of them get it. Maybe 10 of them out of 10,000 get it. And so the catalysts are all to the upside. And most of these risks, they've been worked out over the last decade. One, you know, I, you could... All right. 10,000 billion-dollar entities. That's an interesting uh, type of statistic or way to look at this. I think that's... Probably, obviously, roughly accurate, uh, but only five or ten of two, five or ten of them know about Bitcoin or get it. I don't think that's the case. Um, I mean, a lot of most of those big entities are going to be multiple people, maybe even thousands of stakeholders, and in the case of a government, millions, right? And so, um, it's not necessarily that people don't get it. It's that. Each of these different entities have their own game theory involved, their own decision-making process involved. And at this stage in the game, people like Michael Saylor, who is also a billion-dollar entity, th this, this time just worked out for him. And it worked out for many others in a similar situation, in a similar um, uh, billion-dollar entity to his. And so that is... It's a kind of a different way to look at it. It's my way of looking at it is that these things will advance as they are intended to advance. I mean, they're almost predestined in a way. And that's, that's one reason when another podcast I've started saying that you can question free will in a way because everything seems so predetermined. You know, Bitcoin's incentives are aligned and Bitcoin is a miraculous invention. And um, it, almost as if we don't have a choice but to adopt Bitcoin. It's interesting when you think about it in that way. But anyway, um, yeah, this, these billion-dollar entities, they will get it. It's just a matter of when it makes sense for them. Um, and, you know, these big bankers, banks are billion-dollar entities, central banks, governments, these insiders of these groups, they are going to front-run any decision that their big entity will make. Uh, so when you start seeing big, uh, I don't know, banking executives going in Bitcoin, then that's when, um, you know, the, the next phase starts. That's probably not this phase. I would say 
people like Michael Saylor, maybe even like hedge fund managers, stuff like that, will start getting it and they will put their personal wealth in and then also uh, put some of their funds money allocated to to Bitcoin. But that's it's it's a growing segment. It just continues to evolve. And yeah, that's that's where we're at. It makes make a list of 100 things that might go wrong. We've watched them all happen. They haven't killed it. And we're just sitting right at the cusp of something really fabulous here. Yeah, the, the, the debate on um, buy and hold, by the way, I mean, that's not something I, I, I really have any care to get into. I mean, that's, that's an age-old debate. You know, when somebody says they're a bad trader or they can't trade around things, I believe them. You know, I, 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 I built my whole career on having the ability to say the opposite to that. I mean, a lot of the things that I've owned... Uh, including the company that I built. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it's going to be, uh, as, as I'm sure you would uh, agree. In three to five years, it's not what it's going to be today or tomorrow. I mean, what I don't know, but what I actually own and risk manage around, whether it be my company or any asset for that matter that, that, I, that I care to traffic in uh, or allocate my hard-earned assets to, you know, that's, there's, the, the, these things are widely unknown. All right, this is a big debate with uh, me. I've gotten into similar debates to this in the past about, you know, can you time the market, etc. I believe you can. There there's it's a skill that people have. Um but usually that is built on information or at least asymmetric information. So if you have if you're a farmer, you're going to know agriculture. Maybe you're a corn farmer, you're going to know the corn industry extremely well. You'll be able to time the market better than say uh, just some outsider that's looking in to the industry. Every every expertise will have this similar dynamic. Um, now, in the case of Hedgeye here, what he's trying to do is become a jack of all industries and then be able to time every industry and every trade uh, across the board. And so he's developed a strategy to somewhat be able to do that. But most of the time, when people are doing that, then they, what they are actually doing is they have a system of risk management, you know, doubling and making similar size trades all the time, watching your money very, very closely, being very disciplined on your trades, doubling down on winners, cutting losers, etc. things of that nature. Um, and it's not necessarily that he's timing the market better. It's that he's implementing a better strategy, a better practice and process. Um, it's not necessarily that his information is better. Okay, I just want to get that out there. Now, for people like myself or others that specialize in an exact specific field, um, yes, they can usually trade in time a lot better than other people because they're there and in it. They know the ebbs and the flows of that industry, of the technology that's involved, of the people that's involved, the geography and all this stuff, right? And so um, uh, there's that. But as a hedge eye, founder and CEO making his career. I mean, I'm guessing his career is longer. Like, you know, he trades himself and he's considering his trading career. Um, and Hedgeye is just his business. Now, remember, Hedgeye is selling um, hedge fund quality uh, research to retail investors. Now, hedge funds usually underperform the market. I Fact check me on that. But but I think that 50% uh, of hedge funds perform under or underperform the market. Uh, I don't know. There, there's just so many problems with that comment. Uh, and again, they're talking past each other. Keith is looking at it from a trading perspective where Michael is looking at it from, look, this is going a hundred X or a thousand X. And Keith is looking at it like, 
look, this is going up 5%. It's a very different strategy here. Keith's strategy has no ability to pick a 1,000x return, 1,000x investment. He cannot comprehend. He doesn't, it doesn't even enter his mind. He has no idea how to comprehend a 1,000x return on an investment. I'm not saying that's bad. It's not a cut on him. That is actually a uh, very important distinction here. And we need people like Keith and we need people like Michael. But throughout this interview, you'll see that it cannot sink into his head a, a thousand X return. It just doesn't register. Like, how could you possibly know that, Michael? That it does not register at all. Okay, let's continue. Um, so for me, this discussion has a lot to do with that. Like educate myself like I've tried to on literally any asset class that exists that trades with a certain level of volatility or not. And that's, that's what I want to do, you know, for the rest of my life is just continue to educate myself on what I don't know. Um, because uh, I actually do think that, um, you know, timing is doable. It has been. If it wasn't, then I wasn't able to buy a bunch of Bitcoin in April and May from people who ostensibly didn't know what they were doing. So, But you sold it, Keith. You sold it. You sold it 50% lower than where it is right now. How come your market timing failed on that? Again, it's not timing. It is risk management. It is a process that he has better than other people. I have for you uh, on that. Like, is there like in any? Because uh, I'll cede your point. It's a it's an asset that you want that you want to hold. And people don't understand it. Uh, there's no need to trade around it because that's how you roll. I, I like core positions that I trade around because that's how I roll. Uh, but if it is to be what you believe it to be, which is a reserve asset, you know, what kind of volatility characteristics you know, are you A, observing, and would you need to continue to see for that to be true? Well, Keith, first of all, I think that the historic knock on Bitcoin is it's highly volatile. And for the first 10 years, uh, okay. there are lots of volatilities uh, that took place. But I think if you look at the last 90 days and, and the last yeah, three, four, five months, if you're looking at this, every single day, I look at the 30 years, uh, the 30 treasuries and swaps. I look at 10-year treasuries. I look at the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000. I look at gold. I look at silver. I look at Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Mm -hmm. And then I compare them all to Bitcoin. And I got to tell you, Keith, like my unscientific view is on every single day, at least half of those assets are more volatile than Bitcoin. And on a lot of volatile days, I've seen, I've seen 80 to 90% of them be more volatile than Bitcoin. So I think there's a historic narrative slash belief. People think they know this is volatile, but in fact, it's not looking that volatile to me over the past three months. Mm -hmm. I, and uh, I, don't think, I don't think over the next decade, it's gonna have the same characteristics of volatility that it had over the last decade. All right, right there at the end, he got to um, Keith's question was, what is your volatility assumptions going into this? Um, well, let me explain that real quick. So I, I think this is what Keith is, is looking for. Like, okay, so, um, they would work on volatility, a lot of their work, from what I understand. And uh, applied volatility would be backward looking. So you can look at the charts and uh, get the data and calculate an applied volatility for a certain time period. Um, how it got from point A to point B, how volatile was it along the way. Um, then you have implied volatility, and that is forward-looking, and that's based on models. Um, 
different dated options will be like the prices and the spreads uh, on these options will go into your model and then you can calculate out an implied volatility going forward. How do you get from now to some point in the future? That's very nuanced and I think that's very hard with Bitcoin because Bitcoin has its own cycle. And you can kind of tell here that Michael is a little bit new to Bitcoin because he's saying like over the last three to six months, Bitcoin has been a lot less volatile. Well, that's it gets this way every time it goes through this era of the cycle, you know, from pretty much six months before the halving to six months after the halving, you're going to have a lot less volatility. Uh, that's just because of the way the cycles work out. Okay. And we we will get back to volatility. It might never be as quite as volatile as it was in the beginning, um, but we will have a lot of volatility in the future, but based on Bitcoin's internal cycles. Another thing to look at is Keith will bring up here in a few minutes his quads. Uh, these are his ways to evaluate different investments in different market conditions. Bitcoin has only been around for one major cycle. Right After the 2008 financial crisis, then Bitcoin was born, and it's only been around during this quote-unquote reflationary phase of the U.S. market. Now, the world has gone in different phases. So they had Euro crisis a couple times in there, um, some other stuff with emerging markets. But for, for the U.S. only, during this whole time, it's been somewhat of a reflationary period. And um, so Bitcoin has had its internal cycles within a broader reflation, single reflationary cycle. And it's very hard to go and plug that into some model, right? Like if you're looking at gold futures or gold, uh, gold futures themselves are not even that old. I think they date back, what, to the 80s maybe? or I don't know. They don't date. Maybe that's the ETF, gold ETF I'm thinking of. But they're, they're not all of the products for some of these older type of commodities have been around very long. A lot of them are new just in the computer age. Uh, so you'd be surprised at that. But if you go and look back at the performance of gold or silver during different epochs of history, then yeah, you can see a little bit more historical data, but you don't have that for Bitcoin. And so plugging Bitcoin into one of these models like Keith is going to try to do here in a second, that's not really legit in my opinion, because again, Bitcoin has its internal cycles and it exists within a single cycle of the broader global market and so um, how bitcoin is going to behave in this one uh, we just have to wait and see most likely those internal cycles will be dominant but you'll probably see some small differences as we go into like a depression a depressionary uh, type of phase or whatever i don't know but yeah those internal cycles are the most dominant okay let's continue on that, by the I, I, way, like that is something that we can, um, if you don't mind me interrupting, like that's something that we can uh, measure and map and do daily, like across durations. Guys, throw up the implied vol table if you want, which I include. Interestingly, uh, you made the point on Apple vol, Microsoft vol. You know, these things are wacky, wacky tobacco vol. I mean, Apple volatility is at 50. You know, for people that don't know what volatility is and they, they just need a mousetrap to kind of, you know, com compartmentalize the thought, the VIX today is trading in the high 20s. Apple volatility is, is double that, right? So, again, you're right. I mean, you've seen, you've seen volatility. What happens with volatility, as you know, is that when something goes down, it, it, it starts to realize volatility. The, the 
the Bitcoin volatility actually looks a lot like gold vol, like gold, gold volatility in the last 90 days. So your observations are an empirical fact. So, so Keith, I think you and I both agree that the monetary supply is expanding and it's probably going to expand at double the rate it used to be expanding for the yeah. past decade. And that's stampeding a lot of investors into a store of value. So I, I think the Fed crowded everybody out of treasuries and sovereign debt because you're looking at effectively zero yield. And, uh, and if, you ex if, if you expect the monetary supply to expand by 15% a year, 10 to 15% over the next three to five years, then that means that a 5% yielding bond is negative 10% asset return. And it means that, you know, it, it means that I got to go somewhere. So am I going to go to big tech or am I going to go to gold? Ten, uh, now, NASDAQ is $10 trillion and it's big tech and gold is $10 trillion. And I look at, you know, Apple. Apple is like emblematic of big tech. But between you and me, we both know Apple is more volatile than Bitcoin for the past three months. And there's $2 trillion looking for a store of value. People are literally using Apple stock as a store of value because it's a deflationary. Apple's buying it back. And they think Apple's not going anywhere. And they're desperate to flee currency. And so I get it. I know Apple. I can buy a million dollars of Apple. I buy it. It seems to work, but it's really volatile. So if people are buying Apple and it's volatile and then they're not buying Bitcoin when it looks less volatile, again, it, you know, you would do all of your readers a big service, Keith. Okay, we can stop it there. Um, now... I, you know, if you guys have listened to my stuff recently over the last six months or so, uh, well, six months to a year probably, you know that I disagree with what he's saying. The inflation rate is not 10 to 15%. Just look at the, in, the inflation expectations, the CPI, any of these things. Um, you're not getting any inflation. Over the last few months, you've actually had pretty, well, you had a, sharp spike in deflation during March and April. And then you've had a pretty steady deflationary period since then where credit is actually being contracted around the world. QE is not inflation. Fed balance sheet is not money supply. All right. That is casino chips held at the Fed that they they're denominated in dollars. Yeah, sure. But they are not dollars. What constitutes a dollar? Well, it's fungible and liquid around the world. Plain and simple. Reserves held at the Fed are not fungible and liquid around the world. They are not dollars. They are denominated in dollars. They are an asset. Denominated in dollars. They are not dollars. I don't know how much more clear I can be than that. But if it were, if it was expanding at 10 to 15% a year, we would see massive inflation of everything. Not just a few assets. The reason why we have a few assets going up in price can be for a myriad of reasons that are not due to inflation. If in a hurricane, if uh, generators go up, like if you could move the prices around, because now they have racketeering laws where you can't increase the price of bottled water or generators or whatever in, in crisis or natural disasters. But let's say you could, and during a hurricane, it'd be natural to think the price of generators would go up. I don't know, my quadruple quintuple um go up 10 times who knows 
but you wouldn't turn around and be like, oh my God, it's hurricanes cause inflation. No, hurricanes are deflationary. They actually destroy capital. What we've lived in for the last 10 years is a, is a 10 year financial hurricane. And the prices of certain assets like treasury bonds, the, the quote unquote risk-free rate, the risk-free product have gone up. That is totally normal. The super safe assets have gone up in value because we're in this financial hurricane that's lasted for 12 years now, or since 2008, 12 years. And it's just getting worse right now. We're kind of coming to, maybe we're in the eye of the storm right now. And the next leg is when the, you know, the next wall, eye wall comes through. But saying a few assets going up in value is symbolic of a monetary inflation is just wrong. Now he's, I agree with his eventual conclusion though. You know, he just gets there in a wrong way. The, the monetary system is broken, but not, it's not, it's never going to hyperinflate. So this, the monetary system is broken, but it's not broken in an inflationary way. It's broken in a deflationary way. There is no growth possible. You're going to have zero growth, zero inflation. It's just going to stagnate. You're probably going to have a C deflation. The, the way that the financial system is set up right now, expan- uh, inflation, um, well, let me say this, credit expansion equals growth equals inflation. That is, they're all equal to each other. And I think we will run into this later when we're talking about the quads here. I don't want to talk too much. <laughs> Let's listen to these guys talk. All right, continuing. I would love if you did this because the Bitcoin analysts don't do this. The crypto analysts don't do this. They calculate volatility of Bitcoin against Tron, Chainlink, Ethereum, <laughs> and Tether, and EOS. But but there's $250 trillion of assets that own gold, technology, and bonds. What we need, Keith, is a one-page one that shows the volatility of Bitcoin versus gold, silver, Apple stock, NASDAQ, Russell 2000. I think Coinmetrics does this. There's probably several outlets that do something like this or something very similar. Um, and it's funny, Michael was just propping up cypherpunks. We found out something in the world and we created this awesome thing. We saw something other people couldn't. Um, but now he's, maybe he's trying to build rapport here with Keith and build him up uh, because uh, he's kind of dissing on it. And Keith's playing right into it. Thousand Dow bonds, 30s, yeah. 10s, et yeah. cetera, versus Bitcoin on a 90-day and a 30-day and maybe a six-month trailing average. Yeah. And then when you get up, you get to decide, do you put your, is Apple your store of value? Is NASDAQ your store of value? Is gold your store of value? Is Bitcoin your store of value? Everybody can have their own opinion. Right. I just happen to be of the opinion that Bitcoin's going to, Bitcoin is the Facebook of monetary systems. And the different, and, and everybody thought Facebook, what is this thing? It's worth $10 billion in 2012. Why would anybody want to buy this thing? And I thought, well, maybe because a billion people will use it. And I think with Bitcoin, well, what happens, Keith, when a billionaire shows up with a billion dollars and wants to drop it on the Bitcoin network? How many billionaires can drop a billion dollars on the Bitcoin network before this thing becomes substantially more interesting and more valuable than Facebook? Because mm-hmm. as I said, nobody ever brought a billion friends to Facebook. <laughs> yeah, they can be, bring a lot more than a billion dollars. If, it, if it's going to be what people believe it to be. And by the way, 
I love a great story. I mean, I, the gold story has been around for 5,000 years. It's a, it's a great old story, but it doesn't mean I own it in size at every... It's not just a great old story. It's studying monetary history and understanding these types of things. That's one reason why he can't identify 100x opportunities or 1,000x opportunities because he thinks they're great stories. Single price. I, I don't want to go back into the, like, I, I'll own it core. I'll trade around, you know, the risk of it. The thing is, if it, if it is to develop the attributes of something that, and that's how I, that's why I wanted to have this conversation to begin with. It had nothing to do with kind of the, the background, you know, trolling of the discussion on Twitter. It actually has to do with just that. It's, is it a core asset allocation and how big is it going to be and what is it going to replace? These things, you know, again, you have to have a volatility assumption because you, know, you made this, this is a very good point that you made here. Um, and you were using the Tron point and, and, and I don't know shit about Tron. I mean, and if people think that that's, uh, he doesn't know anything, that's fine. I, I already, I already seeded the point. I don't know what the fuck that is. Um, but again, you, you're, you're talking about the flow into the pond as opposed to, you know, the ocean that is asset allocation. Like the ocean, forget a billion. You could, if you had the pension fund of any major state allocate, you know, a hundred billion, you know, the, the system wouldn't be able So what we have to do is make that case, I think. Um, here, I mean, this is what I would say to this is we, we went through this with the coronavirus stuff is that people don't understand exponential growth. You know, people just don't understand it. And he's talking about a trickle into an ocean that is asset allocation. Okay, true. But that trickle was a drop before. Then it was 10 drops. You know, now it's a trickle. And pretty soon it's going to be a raging river, probably by the end of this year or next year. And then pretty soon it's, it's, the ocean is now going to be Bitcoin instead of the other ocean of asset allocation. So um, it's just the inability to grasp exponential growth. And that goes in again to this, the inability to grasp a a hundred X or a thousand X investment opportunity. Like, can it be that? And, 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 and what would be the things that you would look for to, to establish that, that flow? We can uh, skip forward here a few minutes. All right. I fast forwarded to 2046. So in the year 20, 20, you have a choice. You have a digital gold. They can't make any more. Bitcoin miners are the friends of Bitcoin owners. They're not the enemies of Bitcoin owners. So bottom line is you want to store $100 million for 100 years, you put it in gold. Under the best case, you'll lose 85% of it. Under the likely case, you'll lose it all because the bank will fail, the country will fail, somebody will seize it, or someone will enjoy it. The reason that the Bitcoin maximalists, the cyber hornets, if you will, the reason they're passionate and religious about this is because for the first time in human history, you can take all of your wealth and your life force, you can put it into an asset, you can keep the keys, you can take custody of your million dollars, your hundred thousand dollars. No government, no bank can take it away from you. There's nobody to tell you you can't own your life force. Obviously, he's very, very bullish here. He gets cosmic here in a second. Um, I mean, all of these things are perfectly stated. He's making a great case for Bitcoin. Um, the only place that I really would push back on things that Michael Saylor is saying here is the vision that 
Bitcoin is versus an inflationary system, where Bitcoin is versus a deflationary system, right? And so that's why Bitcoin is going to be seen as the place to get returns, the place to get growth, the place to have all the green shoots are going to be over on Bitcoin. You're going to be silly if you don't invest a little bit in Bitcoin, right? And we already see some of that idea flourishing here. It's not going to be escape, bring your store value over here. It's going to be more of like, Look, this is the place better to grow your wealth, all right? This, if you want to get ahead, you have to own a little Bitcoin and be involved at least something uh, somewhere in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And if you have hopes and aspirations for your family, for your religion, for your, for, for your life, then you have the power to achieve those hopes and aspirations without asking the permission of a bank or a government or a politician and and if if money if money is uh, energy right and and this energy is going to last a long long time energy is essential to life bitcoin is about immortal life it's about achieving your hopes and aspirations for as long as you can conceive of them now tell me you think you're going to love Apple stock or gold or silver bars or bonds or municipals the same way as that? I don't love anything. I mean, when it comes to assets, I mean, other than my own company and my family, I mean, it's not like, I guess that's the one difference that we have here. I don't. He loves his profits, man. He loves his 5% profits. Now, how about 100x profits, Keith? Wouldn't you love that? That's that's a beautiful story, by the way, and it's it sounds like it you're could, a traitor, could, could Keith. Be true. No, <laughs> that's I, I could be. Keith. We can call you can call me whatever we want. The reality. See, Keith is thinking tra being called a traitor is a slight. You know, it's a pejorative. It's not. A trade traders are very very important to the world. You know, for price discovery, for liquidity, very important. And his five percent gains are very important for Michael's one hundred x gains. See, and there's some people that can identify this and some people that can't. Keith is happy to, and he's doing a great service and he's happy. He's got his family, you know, he's got his company. He's doing, he's making money. Great. The only thing I really kind of don't like about this is um, selling this type of stuff to retail investors as not a specialist, but as a generalist is, I think, insincere and dangerous. The reality is that, um, you know, that that beautiful story does get interrupted uh, through the other side of the trade. And that's actually, we can't just at the same, and I, I do appreciate that you said what you said, which is, wouldn't it be powerful and really empowering to give people the actual data, that, which we do, by the way. We also include inverse correlation data, which absolutely matters to Bitcoin. So when we're talking about the volatility of Bitcoin across durations, we're talking about the implied and inverse correlations that are currently existing, you know, even though that story is a beautiful one, this other one won't cease to exist immediately. And we do have I mean, to deal with what we call uh, you know, dollar up or quad four. And those are days where people that do believe that, like, look, look do, I, I'm not sure if you know what quad four is. I think it's pretty straightforward. But the reality is that we back-tested that economic circumstance. Because, again, no matter what your, your, your life is, the, the one that you love or you don't love, you know, quad four is when both growth and inflation are slowing at the same time. The only all right, so this is very important. Um, if you guys go over to the video that is linked down in the show notes, the, the source video for this, uh, at minute 
48, there is a chart that he puts up that talks about the quads, okay, and specifically Bitcoin's backtest during these quads. Now, he said there that uh, quad four was when growth is down or decelerating and inflation is decelerating. Um, let me just go through the quads here. So quad one and two are both when growth is going up, when growth is accelerating. But quad one is when you have inflation decelerating and quad two is when you have inflation accelerating. Now quad three um, and four are both when growth is decelerating and but quad three is when inflation is accelerating and quad four is when inflation is decelerating. So what he's saying is right now we're in quad four, growth is decelerating and inflation is decelerating. Now I have some problems with this. My problem is how do you measure growth? You know, so all of this is dependent on measuring growth and inflation. How do you measure growth? Are you using GDP? Well, on other shows, other podcasts, I've gone through why GDP is a bad measure. It's pretty much just a measure of government spending at this point. And also, are you measuring it with just U.S. or are you measuring it globally? This, that's going to be very different. U.S. growth has been lower than global growth for a long time. You know, you might have uh, East Asian growth at 5 to 10% where you have global growth maybe slowing right? Or whatever. So these can be different throughout the world. And um, so, yeah, I I don't know why they're talking just U.S. growth because Bitcoin is a global product. It's a global good. Um, and inflation, again, yeah, how is that measured? The only way to really measure inflation is by measuring credit expansion because money is credit. Credit is money. And in this system, in this financial system right now, so growth equals credit expansion, and that equals inflation. That is just how it works. So there is really very little difference here between these quads. Um, because if growth is going up, that means inflation is going up. So there's it, that would be quad two. Quad two is growth going up, inflation going up. Quad four is growth going down, inflation going down. So really there's only quad two and quad four. There There is no possibility that you can have quad one and three at this moment. And since inflation is going down in the long term here, we have to like, why even have quad two? We've been in quad four for a long time. I don't understand. I don't understand what that's all about. Um, so anyways, um, what else do I want to say about this? Uh, the quads really don't measure much. Okay. It's kind of, it's a product that he's using to build his research research bundle for Hedgeye that he can sell to retail investors. But it really doesn't mean much. Remember, the way that a generalist trader makes money is through discipline and process. The way that a specialist makes money is by timing the market and asymmetric knowledge, seeing outsized returns. To sum up his quads right there. Any time you're going to lose money in Bitcoin is in quad four. That's a back-tested fact. It might change. It might not be a fact that everybody likes because it stirs up hornets or whatever, but there's, I don't love or hate that, right? There are three different economic scenarios out of four. Again, just real quick, quad four is growth decelerating and inflation decelerating. Um, we've been in quad four for a decade. Where I know I'm gonna make money being long Bitcoin, and that's awesome. You know, you know what the only other thing that has that attribute, the major one that you've mentioned? It's tech. 
big cap tech. Big cap tech, the only time you could lose a considerable amount of your assets, a drawdown, which I think most humans should be aware of, uh, is when you have those quad four deflationary conditions. Okay, another thing I just thought of here is that he might be misidentifying growth as obviously GDP, but there's another way that you can maybe get mixed signals or different data. So he's he's trying to put a narrative to the data, and that's understandable. That's what we should do. But, um, you know, if if we have deflation and we have this financial hurricane that we're living through for the last 12 years and the prices are being distorted in certain ways, right? So um, actions by the Fed will distort the economy, not necessarily inflate the money supply, but will distort, drive distortions in the economy. So will regulation, you know, uh, tariffs, trade, uh, taxation, that will distort the market. And so, you know, that's probably would explain these types of narratives that he's finding in the data, not the quads. Okay. This is not growth and inflation. Growth has been decelerating and inflation has been decelerating for 12 years. So that's one thing that I just wanted to submit here today. Like, is that something that people that are you know, romanticizing about the story, like, are aware of fundamental. I think it would be good for them to be aware of that because at least that would they'd buy a lot more of it at the time when they could get a lot more of it at a lower price. Well, Keith, you know, I'm I'm glad there are traders in the world, and I'm not a trader. But if there were no traders in the world, there would be nobody to sell to me when I want to buy. So I want people to do that, and I appreciate it. But having said it all. Let's go back to the year 2012, and let's talk about trading Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. And at the end of the day, the only mistake you could make is be short any of them. At at the end of the day, Amazon crushed 15,000 retailers, and Google crushed 10,000 different entertainment companies, and Apple destroyed 10,000 different device companies. And so there is one asset in each of those markets that destroyed everybody else. If you picked the one asset and you bought it at any point in the decade, you were a winner. And if you sold it at any point in the decade, you were a loser. So, you know, the difference is, I mean, when you talk about trading soybeans or corn futures or wheat or oil or whatever, these are commodities and people make them and the price goes up and the price goes down. And if you time it right, Okay, the reason why that what he's trying to say here, I think, is that if you sold it any time during that decade, you were a loser. And if you bought it any time during that decade, you were a winner. But why is that? Because of network effects. Because this is a net, these things are networks and they grow at exponential rates. So these exponential type phenomenon do not fit into the normal trade. They won't register on Keith's volatility index or whatever he's using. Because, again, he has the inability to spot these 100x or 1,000x returns. You make some money. But when we're talking about a software network that's going to change the life of a billion people and dematerialize a trillion dollars of energy, the only question is, is that one the winner? And Bitcoin is the winner of of the crypto wars. It defeated 6,500 different crypto competitors, and it has risen out of 
those wars to be the dominant crypto asset network, just like Amazon defeated every retailer in, in cyberspace, just like Apple defeated everybody in mobile space, just like Facebook defeated everybody in social space. You have a chance to buy and own the winner and just wait for the rest of the world to recognize it. And you know, you tell me, is there any winning trade of Facebook or Apple or Google or Amazon stock in the year 2012 that's better than the trade of buying it? Not that's better, but there are other winning trades. And that's what Keith will fire back on. Of course, there is a other profitable trade, but he won't address, is it better, right? He won't address the better question at the end. Um, yeah, and then Keith was talking about, hey, you can buy more when the price is down. But that's not always the case in between cycles. Because let's say uh, during the run-up, well, during a bull market, first off, very few trades will be not profitable, right? Like it's very hard to own something in an exponential curve that you're not going to make money on. Right. So Keith buying it and selling it two months later and making a tidy sum, he probably is best trade of the year. It's probably going to make his year what his Bitcoin trade. But um, it's very hard to not win in one of these types of assets. Right. But falsely equating a profitable trade and being the best possible trade that you could have made, that's a big difference. So if Bitcoin runs up 500%, and your trade throughout that period, you made 20% on. Great, good job. But you went all out. You didn't. You weren't able to capture that other huge percentage. And then in quad four or whatever you're talking about, when Bitcoin pulls back 50%, even if it pulls back 50%, you're still never going to be able to buy as much as if you would have just held it in the first place. And so each successive cycle, your returns diminish compared to if you just bought and hold. See, that's it's a compounding of network effects, right? You benefit from the exponential growth of something instead of, you know, taking piecemeal bites out of it and making a small little profits along the way, you could just compound all of your returns into one big long holding session of, of these things. All right, let's keep going. We're getting close to being done here, I think. Well, it depends on, I, what, you know, depends, when I look at it, it I depends just on think... what you're looking for. I mean, it's not like, um, you know, what, there, there's making money because you have none. Uh, and there's that, you know, that, that, I get that, you know, you, you can't afford to miss this, uh, because if you miss Facebook, you're an idiot, you know? Um, but then there's, once you have money, there's risk managing the money that you have. Like I would say that a low volatility asset class that I own a shitload of and consume it, it's very liquid as wine. I mean, it's standed the test of time. I mean, if you choose the right vintage and hold it, you can hold it and, and drink it and enjoy it thoroughly. You know, there's, there are a lot of different ways to do this. This isn't just like, there's one idea that can change the world. Therefore, I mean, if you took my wine away from me, I'd, I'd hate my life. That would suck. I mean, that's, that's my life, right? It's so, so from a... Not one idea, but there's many different exponential ideas like Keith has been laying out here. There is Amazon, Facebook, Google, Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is going to be even bigger than all of these others. But it's not just one. It's all these exponential opportunities and the fact that you did not identify these or cannot identify these means that there's a complete difference here of you guys are talking past each other. A libertarian's perspective. Yeah, you know, I think there are a lot for me. What I'm really trying to find is the place for which I have found, by the way, I found a Bitcoin is an asset allocation in my portfolio. It's not all of it. 
And I don't, I don't know why it has to be all or none. And I, and I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Because in addition, straw man, no one's saying it has to be all. In addition to my company's equity, my wine, my yeah, I do. There are times to own a lot of gold, and there are times not to. That's actually the lesson that I'm trying to to to, to at least engage so, people in with with Bitcoin specifically. So Keith. All the guys that have more money than God in this world, right, they have it because they bought or owned or created uh, a technology that changed the life of a billion people. And so I don't think you're going to get a thousand extra return on buying a, a nice Chateau Brion or, or whatever. Absolutely um, not. If, if you could show me, if you showed me a sugar cube that you could produce a billion of and give it to people and for the rest of their life, they would be perennially happy with no health issues. I would say you should invest in that wine network. But what we're talking about here is a monetary network never before in the history of the world created at the beginning of the S-curve. If you buy at the beginning of the S-curve and you're right, then you're going to have an extraordinary return as an investor. If you buy at the end of the S-curve, maybe you'll hold some value. But the other important point is... If you can't identify, or if you follow Keith's strategy, you cannot identify those things. You can't, you will not ever have 1000x gains. If you use Keith's strategy, there you're going to be dealing with percentage gains over the year. All right, guys, I have one more clip. I'm going to fast forward here to 3455 because a lot of this stuff is redundant. Uh, you probably can already tell that, but. Uh, this is when he um, asks a direct direct question to Michael Saylor. And I I think he Michael does a good job of answering this, but he doesn't really get to the heart of it. So let's play this and find out what we got. And again, it's not, we can't, if you want, you can reduce uh, me to just being a trader. I don't think you're trying to do that. But the reality is that uh, it's not about the level of inflation. Never has been, Michael. It's about the rate of change of a price basket of things that are inflating. And that's absolutely what Quad 4 is. Sometimes it's deflating, sometimes it's inflating. You'd have to be a certified idiot to say that oil at a negative oil price, which it was in Q2, which impacted, you know, again, the price of Bitcoin was hostage to Quad 4. That, this is obeying the laws of thermodynamics. It is the secret to the universe. It is calculus. It's rate of change. So, again, I, I think, and it would be great that if Bitcoin bulls who have this, the long-term story nailed down would just seed that point. The rates of change, it's not unlike the weather. The rates of change of growth and inflation absolutely impact the price of Bitcoin. And if, if people knew that, you'd have more people you know, less concerned or worried about buying Bitcoin because they'd have the confidence to buy it during a hurricane. A hurricane or quad four conditions is when you have disinflation. So I, I don't know how somebody would refute that. You know, can you? All right. So I'm going to give it a shot here. The <laughs> Oh, man. Well, Keith, we could start with the fact that you sold before another 50% rally. So from the bottom in March, it's gone up, what, 300%? And you captured, what, 20% of that move? And now that's supposed to be a validation of your model? No, it's called luck. You invested in an exponential technology during a bull market, and you captured about a quarter, maybe, of the overall move. That's called luck. That has nothing to do with um, your faulty quads. 
And so let's get into some specifics. First off, quad four is ill-defined. It is too broad. And we've been in a 12-year 12 12-year bear market. Arguably, the last 12 years could be all quad four. I mean, there was some reflation, but you know what you're doing is you're using some data that's given to us by the government, and then you're seeing the patterns that they want you to see, right? Like I've said many times, the whole, we're making a flood of money printing from that Jay Powell has said they're printing money. That's because they want you to think that they're printing money so that you will act uh, as if there was inflation, and then we might get real inflation. But no, you're you're just seeing the patterns that the government wants you to see. The last 12 years is we have been in a depression for 12 years, basically. Um, all quad four, arguably. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that that's a one-off example. I mean, if you take March out of your data, Bitcoin, most likely that, that whatever correlation or you're finding there with your calculus is probably going to reverse because that was the most uh, incredible correlation that Bitcoin has had in its history. I mean, Bitcoin hasn't lived through this type of cycle yet. So if you take those like maybe three days out of your data, you're probably going to get the reverse story. All right. I mean, just think, okay, 2019, we had a big 350% run uh, from the bottom in March. We've had another 350% run and you captured 20% with your system. That is amazing, Keith. That is super, super amazing. Your your system must be excellent. Okay? It's not calculus, man. You you think that the market is built off calculus? It's not. All right? You, you identify some patterns because there is some sort of, you know, there's high-frequency trading. There's other humans programming things, and you can identify some patterns in that. You can also identify the patterns you're meant to see in government release data. It doesn't mean that he, it's a better way to do it than what Michael's saying here. Because again, you've had two 350% run-ups in the last two years, and you got 20% of one of them. That is not sound like calculus to me. And it's not hard to be accidentally right in a exponential asset like Bitcoin. There's just not enough time. There's not enough cycles. There's not enough data to go on especially for Bitcoin. Some of these other assets, yeah, maybe, because they're not in an exponential growth phase. Bitcoin is. All right, that's all I have to say about that. Guys, I'm recording this on Friday evening. So happy weekend to everybody. If you want to watch this, Original over the weekend, I did leave the heated moments, the kind of juicy bits for you in the original, so you can find that bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash E221, that is episode 221. To sum up here, Keith is unable to understand growth, exponential growth, and 1000x investments. Um, he's stuck on his calculus and his method which is good and great and appreciated by the market. It's a very, very important role in the market, okay? But it's not the, it's not the role that's going to identify these 1,000x opportunities. He's, he's 
content with his multiple positions yielding single percentage gains and missing out on these life-altering opportunities of investment. I also had some disagreements with Michael Saylor here um, on asset inflation. Prices are going up in certain things. Asset prices are going up, but that's not because of inflation. It's mainly because that we have been caught in this financial hurricane for the last 12 years. And in a hurricane, riskless or less risky assets go up in price. It's convergent. So if you have an asset that is in the headlines every single day, lots of people are buying it. The stock price is going up. More people will pile in. People are looking for safety. Um, they're looking for some sort of confidence and safety. And that be, that comes in the form of the U.S. bond market and the U.S. stock market. Even if you're a rich person in Brazil or Argentina or South Africa or Malaysia, you are going to see the U.S. stock market as the safe haven. Okay, And so that's one reason why we see this. As deflationary things grip the world, then you're going to see U.S. assets going up in price. And that is very... I mean, it's logical and obvious to me. Also, store of value is a huge, huge meme, but and very important for Bitcoin. But I think that Bitcoin represents optimism and growth. So I, I don't see this hyperinflationary future. I see a deflationary stagnation. And people around the world will see Bitcoin as a potential growth vector. Michael Saylor, he invested, I don't know how much, I think it was $450 million into Bitcoin. And it's grown a lot since then already. So, you know, now he's sitting on $750 million worth of Bitcoin. And people are going to see that. And it's, it's going to be a speculative fervor, just like always with Bitcoin. It's reach for growth is going to drive people again. It's, it's going to be... This, re this optimism and growth story that is Bitcoin. It only makes sense if you juxtapose that with the old system that is going to be stagnation and causing division, right? Because if you have low growth around the world, you're going to have a lot of internal debates and you're going to have a lot of warfare, external conflict starting. Um, and especially as the U.S., is withdrawing from the world as we seem to be then you're i mean it's it's just a recipe for disaster for emerging markets and the biggest being china anyway that's where i'm going to leave it for today guys this podcast is brought to you by the bitcoin dictionary at bitcoindictionary.cc it's a great addition to any bitcoin library you can become the smartest person you know on bitcoin also, if you like this show, please share it amongst your social media groups that you're in, your Telegram groups, rate us on iTunes, subscribe at BitcoinAndMarkets.com, and that's it, guys. Have a great weekend. We will see you next time.